for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. This is The Edit with Trish Wood on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Hi, everybody. This is The Edit, and I am Trish Wood. And there's a lot happening in the world today. And, uh, of course, we got to start with Gaza and, uh, and Israel because... There is a ceasefire on the way, but as we've been saying the last couple of days, the it's always kind of darkest before the dawn. And yesterday, there was a really interesting communique from uh, the Israel military, the IDF, a spokesman for the IDF, who said, the war is not over yet. The military spokesman, Aktivi Adre, has said in a message in Arabic to Palestinian civilians in Gaza. He said that on Twitter, which is really being used a lot for messaging on both sides these days. He said, the humanitarian pause is temporary. The northern Gaza Strip is a dangerous war zone, and it is forbidden to move north. For your safety, you must remain in the humanitarian zone in the south, which we know has also been bombed. So there seems like there's no safe place anywhere for Gazans in Gaza. It's only possible to move from the north of the Strip to the south via Salat al-Din Road. The movement of residents from the south of the Strip to the north is not allowed and dangerous. So that's what they're saying. And there was a commentary yesterday from Benjamin Netanyahu also who made it very, very clear that the hostilities are not over. So we're going to see how this shakes out and how it starts to make itself known. Will there be big official announcements around hostage releases? Will they be debriefed? Where are they going to go? Some people say that the Rafa crossing in southern Gaza into Egypt is going to be used. Other people say the Israelis uh, who are releasing Palestinians might be releasing them into into the West Bank somewhere. So we'll see how this unfolds. I think it's absolutely fraught that many, many things can go wrong. And I think the timing of it is also really interesting because people were starting to question, and rightly so, the bombardment of an area in which many, many, I think the number was around 250 Israeli hostages were being kept. It suggested to uh, Israeli citizens that Netanyahu cared not for his own people, but rather was more interested in destroying Gazan infrastructure and the like. So let's watch how this plays out. I think it's going to be a very, very important moment in this conflict, if they can even sustain it. Here's the other problem. Will the release of hostages also inform, again, if they're allowed to speak, if they're debriefed, um, how they were treated? They Remember Mrs. Lifshitz, who was the first one who came out, a great lady in my view, that's my analysis, my opinion, she was a peace activist, she was taken from one of the kibbutzes that was overrun by Hamas fighters. And uh, when she came out, you'll recall this big moment, and it was a big moment for many people. Other people wrote it off as she was just trying to protect her husband still in custody. And maybe that's what happened, but she turned around and she shook the hand of the Hamas person who led her out and said Shalom, which was either an act of enormous spirituality or an expression of her deep, deep commitment to end the conflict by humanizing all sides, which is absolutely not what's happening now. We won't know from Mrs. Lifshitz what she meant. I've actually been trying to get an interview with her daughter and maybe we'll get one. 
I, I'm sure they've been instructed to to be quiet for now while things are tense, but that's that's one side of the story. So we'll see if the people who were being held by by Hamas when they're released are allowed to to speak or if they're kept kind of under wraps. It'll be very, very interesting. And then on the other side too, um, there will be stories for sure of Palestinians who say that they were also, they were mistreated uh, in Israeli jails and prisons. There's lots of stories about that. So I think people are kind of holding their breath. We've had enough of the constant bombardment. And if you're watching Al Jazeera or the news organizations that are actually carrying legitimate uh, footage from Gaza, uh, shot in Gaza, the the trauma even of watching it is is almost exhausting. It's it's really difficult. So I think there is a sense now in Western governments that somehow this comes to an end. I think there's also a sense, which I said yesterday, that Netanyahu wants to clear the whole area, move them into the Sinai and annex that region. And given that the West, at least publicly, has given Israel almost carte blanche. They're, they're lip servicing, lay off the, the civilians, but they're not doing anything about it. They're not voting for that in the United Nations. So um, we'll see if it's possible to slow this thing down before it changes history forever and changes it in a way that I think is not going to make any of us more secure at all. And isn't this just, I'm going to segue to my my, what my guest is is here for today and who she is, because weirdly these things are tied. I've been trying to tie COVID inquiries to what's happening in Gaza, which might seem a stretch, but it's actually not, because I think that probably most people, majority of people in the West do not support what Israel's doing, and yet our leadership is going full bore, not just not saying knock it off, but supplying weapons and, and um and performative support in places like like the United Nations. So we feel powerless, don't we? No one listens to us. We never really want these wars. We're propagandized for a couple of weeks. They hit us with all these terrible, terrible stories and we're all in and we we hate the enemy and we want to go get them. And then we get, we wake up, we're more sober and we say, mm, the costs are too high. And they use the, the phrase blood and treasure, meaning, we wasted all of this money and we lost too many soldiers and we killed too many civilians. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, after years of covering wars, including the Iraq war and working for a Nobel Peace Prize winning organization in Washington, DC, there's no doubt in my mind that everybody's gonna wake up with a really bad Gaza bombardment hangover, morality hangover. So I think that's where we're headed. And I think people are starting to wake up and perhaps the pause, which was heavily argued within Netanyahu's cabinet, is a way for them to try to gain some of the moral high ground back. But I don't think they will at this point. I think it's just, it's got to end. Someone's got to end this. Anyway, my guest today is here to speak on government overreach and what can a citizenry do citizenry do not just when the government does something wrong but when the government doesn't want to act in a way that accepts accountability for it that offers a remedial 
proposition to the end of it that offers perhaps a truth and reconciliation commission where we you know they get away with this stuff because the government lets them so if the if the or sorry because the media lets them if 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 the media had not been all in on covid-19 public policy failures i mean all in it, all media and almost every Western government were all in. I was going crazy listening to them saying things like safe and effective and all, you know, stay home to stay safe. All of these things that suggested there had been some kind of a, a scientific consensus on what the right way to go was. And there was no consensus. What there was, was a censorship plan to keep the dissident voices out of the main on social media, remember the Twitter files, and certainly in legacy media who were the absolute worst. So what happens then? What do you do about it? We're all feeling very, very impotent. And I I've, I think I've alluded to in my own story that I had a pretty dark night of the soul over the fact that we were helpless. So what happens? The, the convoy happened, which was a terrific pushback against uh, the government overreach and nobody holding it accountable. But the other thing that happened in Canada, which is great, given that the inquiry in the UK into COVID public policy is starting to feel more and more and more like a whitewash, right? They do it. No one really gets blamed. No one is held accountable in a punitive way. Uh, and so history kind of rolls on. There, no one learns anything from it. The document is written. It'll be published a year from now, and there'll be some momentous press release sent out about how it's unprecedented, but they're not even asking the right questions. You know, we had a guest on yesterday, Mike Fairclough, who said they're asking not if the lockdowns were a failure per se, but most people in the conversations are wanting the lockdowns to have started sooner and gone on longer. And there's actually no scientific evidence to back that up, but that is the dialogue going on at the at the commission of inquiry in the uk right now so what are we going to do we're going to talk to michelle leduc catlin a woman i know and respect very well because she is part of what happened in canada where the citizenry said we have had enough of this we are going to do our own inquiry if the government isn't going to do it we're going to do it and a bunch of really interesting and dedicated people got together and started something called the national citizens inquiry and they went across the country. They took a whole bunch of evidence and testimonies from people, both experts and, and the citizenry, the individual people who had anecdotes about how these public policy decisions had ruined their lives. And that's also very important. We must take and keep those histories to stand in the record book forever. And that's what they did. So I'm going to throw to a break right now, and then I'm going to come back with Michelle Leduc Catlin to talk about the purpose of inquiries, why we must take these testimonies, and what she learned on this incredibly, incredibly intense and deep investigation into what happened in Canada, but run by not the government, but concerned citizens. 
I'm Trish Wood, and this is The Edit, and we'll be back in a moment. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. I don't know if you're aware of the so-called protests that took place at the gates of the White House, where uh, red paint, supposed to be blood, was uh, thrown at the uh, gates. The gates were being um, grabbed and and shaken back and forth. Uh, You had F Israel painted on uh, on the wall of a building. You had a statue in Lafayette Park defaced. You also had chants of F Joe Biden. And yet, with all that, and I think of January 6th, and there were some people who deserved to be arrested, certainly on January 6th, but they're still going after people who simply walked into that building and did nothing. Uh, and yet you had one person arrested during that whole episode that I just described in Washington, D.C., at the gates of the White House and in Lafayette Park over the weekend, Saturday. It sounds pretty incredible. The Steve Malzberg Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Here's a bushfire fact. Bushfires can occur without warning. So if you're traveling during bushfire season, here are three simple steps to remember. One, check the fire danger rating before you go. The higher the fire danger rating, the more dangerous the conditions. It may be safer to replan your trip. Two, think about the area you're going to and what you would do if a fire started. How would you escape the area if you needed to? And where would you go? Check if there's a neighborhood safer place. Three, it's dangerous to drive through smoke or fire. If you can't find a way to avoid the fire, park in a cleared area, face the car towards the fire and turn the engine off. Then lie on the floor and cover yourself to protect yourself from radiant heat. Live bushfire ready. For more helpful tips, visit myfireplan.com.au today. CO2 sustains all life on Earth, but now it's in long-term decline. We face the return of an ice age. We mandate that the truth be told. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, everybody. I'm Trish Wood, and we're back on the edit with Michelle LeDuc-Catlin, who took part in something that the world really needs to be paying attention to now. And that is the idea that citizens do not have to sit around waiting for accountability. They can take matters into their own hands and hold their own fact-finding missions. And a bunch of really smart and learned and temperate even Canadians, thoughtful Canadians have done just that. Uh, it's been meeting and he- having hearings across the country, and we're going to hear about that from Michelle Duke Catlin, who is their spokesperson, and more than that, I mean, she was heavily involved in in the organization and the traveling about and the meeting of witnesses and that sort of thing. But it is a bit of a bright spot, especially watching the UK events unfold, knowing nothing particularly big is going to happen as a result of them and watching everybody else heading for the hills. I mean, my goodness, Tony Fauci is still walking around a free man, which is astonishing. If you think about everything that happened and throw in the Wuhan lab leak that he and his, uh, his institute actually subsidized, these things just vanish. You see, if the media is not banging the drum and paying attention They know they can get away with it. It's like, what's on the next news cycle? Oh, they say UFOs are coming. So let's focus on that, (laughs) right? And they just walk away and so much damage was done and we cannot ever forget the damage done. And that is why I have invited Michelle LaDuke-Catlin on the show. Hi, Michelle, how are you? Hi, Trish, I'm good. It's great to see you. 
Good. So you have an announcement, and that is what? Well, after uh, it's been, I think, six months since the hearings that we held across the country have been completed, and next Tuesday, the 28th, the commissioner's full report is going to be released. Are you allowed to talk about what's in it yet or no? Probably not. Well, I can talk about I can. Are you allowed to talk about what's in it yet or no? Probably not. Well, I can talk about I can. What's in it is everything. Yeah. Everything. I can talk about the testimony that I heard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's all out in the public. We've been releasing that testimony as we go. So it's all on the website. It was all on social media. So there's nothing there that's hidden. I would say what's um, not yet released is their recommendations. Okay, so let's get into that in a minute. But I want people to understand what an undertaking that this was. And I will give full disclosure here. I was for a very brief moment myself affiliated with this organization and then realized it was a much, much bigger endeavor than I'd ever imagined. And I couldn't, I didn't have time to take it on. I went through a period of my life around COVID just saying yes to everybody who asked me to do stuff, but I've stopped that now because you can get overwhelmed. And that's what happened. And so that's, that's my declaration. I'm not affiliated with them now, except that I do admire them. Michelle, tell me about, just for people in the world who don't know about what an undertaking this was, please give us uh, the details of what it actually entailed. Mm-hmm. So f- the first thing was to garner the support of Canadians, the involvement of Canadians. So we had a process whereby people applied to be witnesses and applied to be commissioners. And four commissioners were chosen. These are independent uh, of the National Citizens Inquiry, which is a nonprofit organization. And these four commissioners basically were given the task of listening to testimony across the country as impartially as is humanly possible and putting together a report. In addition, there was the witness process. So we heard from over 300 witnesses and experts in every field that you can imagine that could be possibly impacted. So not just health, medical, science, but economics, policing, education, uh, law. So there were many aspects of it that I hadn't examined and I certainly knew nothing about in terms of the impact. Then what we did is we, in order to have it be a, a full participatory inquiry, we went across the country. So from coast to coast, we were in eight cities, we held hearings three days in eight different cities across the country, where we heard testimony from nine in the morning until sometimes eight and nine at night. So Mm -hmm. it was exhausting, it was overwhelming. And I do not envy the commissioners for having to put together that report. Let me ask you this, just sort of about the nuts and bolts about it. Did you invite anybody from the Canadian government, the health department, Teresa Tam, any of the people responsible for rolling out Canada's pandemic policy? Did any of them appear or did they, were they not asked? How did that shake out? All of them were asked, not only asked, but summoned. Now, of course, we don't have a legal authority to summons people, but we did send uh, a summons, an invitation. 
to, I believe it was 63 different government officials. So if there was somebody who was accountable for imposing mandates, they were definitely asked. They were given the option to appear in any city, either live or virtually. So they had ample time and opportunity, not one person accepted. Did anybody respond? Did you actually, I'd be curious to know what they said in their letters, rejecting appearing in front of a panel of citizens. What did they say or did they just not respond? Mostly they did not respond. I believe there were a small handful who said no and, you know, something innocuous, nothing nothing that they could be pinned to. Um, I think all of those, that information is part of our record because in fact, the volunteer from the National Citizens Inquiry who put together these letters, who sent them out, actually testified on the last day of our inquiry so that it was part of the inquiry itself that no public officials participated. The other thing that interests me is that um, the this inquiry that was put together um, by some really smart people, in a sense, took the place of the accountability that the media should have been doing, but did not do. And that is something I, I do harp on about it as a former legacy media journalist, because some of the terrible things that happened during COVID-19 would not have happened if the media had been asking the normal questions that one asks about vaccine safety and let's see the data and why are we why are we mandating this for people who don't need it because they have no risk of dying i mean all of that kind of basic stuff was not asked by legacy media and i i guess i'm, I'm making kind of a statement there and i apologize because I, I meant it to be a question but but <laughs> do, do you do you feel the same way that in like the inquiry is great but would it it have been necessary to do what you folks did if from the beginning of this thing, the media had been doing its job the way it used to do in what I now call the olden days. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, I completely agree. In fact, it was a concerted effort to black out what we were doing because we also had our director of communications testify on the last day about all of the press releases that were sent out to the legacy media all along the way, all of them ignored, despite the fact that on our own, by the end of the inquiry, the, by the end of the hearing process, we had approximately 14 million um, impressions online. So wow. huge interest and nothing from the legacy media. We had one local CBC reporter in Winnipeg because some people knew this reporter and went to them and said, you know, please come cover it. He did a decent job in terms of covering what we were doing, but there was no examination of the impact. There were no interviewing of witnesses, just a kind of, hey, well, look what's happening today in Winnipeg. That's so interesting because what that says, at least to me, is that there is a dividing line and that legacy media, at least in this country, and I think elsewhere, because they were all part of this trusted news initiative, which has been highly scrutinized by some very smart people like Rodney Palmer, um, that they they allied with, with the power structures, that they allied with the, with the authorities instead of acting as the bulwark on our behalf to prevent 
that kind of authoritarian overreach that absolutely manifested during the the implementation of COVID policy. So I, I feel in a sense, and I wonder if you agree, that legacy media really, they'd been criticized for years and rightly so, but they really showed their true colors during COVID-19 here because they didn't seem interested in trying to protect Canadians from what at least neutrally could have been perceived as policy that was dangerous for the country. I I agree completely. And we had several members of the legacy media testify. And Rodney Palmer, as you say, was one of the key witnesses. He testified twice. The first time he broke down the exact moment, the how and the why the CBC moved from news gathering to propaganda at very clearly. In fact, that tweet was that uh, testimony was tweeted by Robert Kennedy Jr. and had two million views within 48 hours. So people are hungry for this information. He again came back in Ottawa to testify the CBC has a number of regular experts experts that they use during the COVID period. And he looked at all of these experts and all of them had ties to an organ, a government funded organization called Science Up First that is promoting vaccination. Every one of them. So I I just, I don't know how, yeah, go ahead, please go ahead. Yeah. In addition, we had a CBC reporter, a senior reporter. So as you know, somebody who would normally be given pretty much carte blanche to investigate whatever stories that she deemed appropriate, who not only was um, micromanaged, but actually had her story about the vaccine injured pulled. Eventually she ended up leaving. And this is a, you know, a really good journalist that we have lost as in so many fields COVID has caused us to lose the best in in those fields. Yeah, and well, and it, it's exposed. I know who you're talking about, Marianne, right? Marianne Cloak, yeah. yeah. And she actually broke her story of quitting the CBC or retiring early uh, over what she was seeing in the newsroom there. And I, I will tell you what she relayed to me, and I'm sure she did with you guys too. I didn't actually look at her testimony for you, but... Um, she was traumatized by that because it felt to her like the rules of journalism had been suspended for this period of time. When you need objective, neutral fact-finding and reporting the most, which is in times of crisis, and we do see this around war declarations too, right? People stop being neutral when there's a conflict in the world. They feel like they've got to line up with their tribe. And that happened very much during COVID. And I understand she, she was trying to report on vaccine injuries and in, in my view in a responsible way and uh safe and effective that's the mantra safe and effective safe and effective without anybody demanding to see the data that showed otherwise even as the vaccine was not keeping people from getting it and spreading it i mean people were still chanting safe and effective it's just it's like it was like a form of madness and we I'm sorry to go on, but we, you know, we can't have our media leave their posts in the middle of a battle. They're supposed to stay and fight for truth for us, but they, they sure didn't. Is that how you experienced it? 
I, completely. It, it's more than that they didn't stay and fight. It's that they actually joined the propaganda. They actually yeah. almost joyful, almost gleefully joined in this dismissive attitude, this, you know, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, those people who are, you know, anti-vaxxers. I mean, even using derogatory terms. Uh, I mean, it, it was beyond not just stepping up to do their job. It was antithetical to their job. And what I'm seeing now in the, you know, obviously I'm going to argue that citizens shouldn't have to put on their own inquiry because we are absolutely worthy of truth-telling as citizens. We, we should demand it and get it. But on the other hand, these things are always a whitewash. I can't think of a report that hasn't been a whitewash from all the way back from the Warren Commission up to the POEC on the truckers here. I mean, 9-11, all of them, right? But at least there is some recognition when there's a public inquiry that something went wrong that needed to be investigated. Walking away from COVID, and turning the page when all of this ruinous wreckage is kind of still smoking on the tarmac, if I can put it that way, is very, very scary for me because I think it sends the wrong message to the people who govern us. And uh, I'm wondering how you think when you release your report on the 28th next week, how you think it's going to be received, A, by the media and be by the people in government who might want to take a look at how their public policy impacted the Canadians that they are supposed to be looking out for. So first, I just have to apologize that I am right in the glare of light. Um, but I, I'm, I think that... Do you need to adjust a little bit? Do you want to... We can you know, go to a break. You mind, Do, well, go, let's go to great. a break. Because I don't want you to be distracted. I can see that you're struggling a bit. So let's, uh, this is Trish Wood, and this is the edit, and I'm with Michelle Leduc Catlin, who has some really interesting things to say about the National Citizens Inquiry in Canada, and she's fighting a sunbeam right now. So we're going to let her fix that and come back in a moment. See you. The then. climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to instant state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. The thing that drives me every day as a dad is him. Every day he's hungry for something. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then it kind of starts to work itself out. 
The Edit with Trish Wood on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, everybody. This is Trish Wood, and I'm back with Michelle Leduc-Catlin, who is speaking on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry in Canada, not just speaking for she was a participant in all of it, saw and witnessed the testimonies um, and met the people whose hearts were broken and who lost family members and had to live with the absolute absurdity of Canada's. We Canada was one of the most COVIDian places in the world. Ridiculous, right? So anyway, they put an inquiry together, super important, and we're debriefing about that because they're releasing their report uh, next week and we're getting a little bit of a jump on that. And I think my question to you just before we had to readjust your, your camera there was about how you feel the media and the government might accept or reject or ignore the document that you're going to drop on on the 28th, which I think is next Tuesday, right? Mm, yes. So um, I, I expect that it's going to be more of the same, that they are going to uh, willfully ignore what's happening. However, part of what has made the inquiry successful in terms of getting the word out, getting the testimony out, is the participation of citizens. And this is the thing that people, you know, in the beginning were asking me, yes, but you know, that's not a government inquiry. You have no teeth, you have no jurisdiction. You know, what are you going to do with this report? And my response has always been, what are you going to do with it? Because this is an invention. This is a creation. It's actually a new muscle in democracy. And maybe that's the good thing coming out of all this is that people are stepping up in a way that they never have, are participating in a way, are holding their officials to account in a way that they never have. So what we did is in September, we actually uh, released a small part of the report because when the government of Canada started announcing the latest booster as safe and effective, the commissioners felt it was important to release a piece that was irrefutable. And that is a piece that is based on the government's own document. And that is a piece that I can talk about because it was released back in September. So most people, uh, and I would assume this happens in most countries, but certainly here, most people think that the government's health agency, Health Canada, approved the injections the same way they would approve any drug. But that, in fact, is not the case. It did not go through the normal drug approval process. It went through a new invented process to speed things up called the interim order. That interim order, and this is, again, this is not based on uh, opinion um, or um, interpretation in the government's own words. This document shows that the, the vaccines were never proven safe or effective. In fact, safety and efficacy are not required in that approval process. And that is available for anyone to look up. In addition, because they ordered the shots before they created this approval process, they created a conflict of interest for themselves. And the normal process where the Minister of Health can pull a drug from the market if it's showing to be unsafe, that's not there. There is no accountability by the Minister of Health. So you know what's interesting about that, just to interrupt, is that that yeah. the I, I made a career out of doing cases where drugs went through the safe and effective 
approval process, which the Health Protection Branch demanded before they ever put a new drug on the market. And if it didn't meet certain criteria, you know, the, the, they, they lost those cases that were being litigated against them. That was just not to put too fine a point, but that was a sacred rule of drug approval in most Western governments. And I'd had enough experience with it to know when they waived that, that something was really, really wrong. And it sounds to me like that's one of the things you're exposing in exposing a whole bunch of elements of our society, our institutions that failed. And one of them, obviously, are the people who, who approve and occasionally decline new drugs coming to market, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's quite shocking. And, and that's certainly something that I learned along the way was the, while this was uh, just so obviously not um, approved as safe, there's actually a history of lack of rigorous science with vaccines in general. This was also part of the testimony. And we also see that even while there was uh, pandemic preparedness in place that had been studied and put together over years by people who are actually experts in their field, that was completely thrown out the window. None of that. It was just ignored. So what do you think, just getting back to, to our original point, how do you think the government will respond and how do you think the media is going to respond when this document is dropped with some fanfare from you people, I'm assuming, on on the 28th? I think that's going to depend on people's participation. So what we're going to be doing, what we've already kind of had a soft launch, but as of Tuesday, we're launching the neither safe nor effective campaign. And we're, we've given people on our website an opportunity to email. And when you put in your name and postal code, there's an email and you can adjust the email, which we recommend, of course, because as you know, when you have a mass email where it's all written the same way, it's not as effective as if they're more individualized letters. But that email will go to your member of legislature, your member of parliament, the minister of health, as well as a couple of other um, concerned MPs. And then we're asking people to copy and paste that letter and actually physically mail it. After that, we're going to have a campaign to send postcards. So there will be downloadable postcards. So we are going to have people get physical evidence into the hands of the mem their members of of parliament. I think an interesting. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Michelle. Well, I was going to say, and there's going to be actually a third part where we're we're going to ask people to do depositions and do a demonstration of how how you do that in a local city council. So we are going to train people on how to be politically involved with this report. And in demanding that their elected representatives pay attention to the report, to the recommendations. See, you're doing something really interesting here in a granular way that translates to something I think everybody should be looking at now procedurally. And that is the fact that I think all of us have come to, maybe too late, but to the understanding that the people in positions of power do not have our best interest at heart, do not care what we think, care only about other elites and their political base and their fundraisers. That is so obviously true 
it used to sound like, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. It actually doesn't because what the, what Western leaders do does not reflect what the people in their country want them to do on many, many, many issues. And what you're doing and what I think NCI has done, maybe even unintentionally as a happy, instructive sidebar to your main effort, which I'm assuming was to inform about what, what happened in this country during, during that time, is you're, you're creating a bit of a toolkit, I think, for, for the citizens to emulate maybe on other issues. Because when, like I, I know in the, for instance, in Toronto, the mayoralty race, the, even the questions being asked here had nothing to do with what I wanted to know about or, or what are policies I thought that they should be asked about. There was a whole other, I thought, what are the, what, nobody's even talking about this? And, and that's because that, that space has been so captured by media and polls who do, politicians who do the, the bidding of elites that we're not even part of the conversation anymore, right? They don't care what we think, mostly. So I think what the NCI boldly did, and wildly successfully too, that even if the government never reads what, what you people found and are writing about, You've showed the citizens how they can come together and formulate something that has meaning. And if that keeps happening, hopefully it will at some point reform the process through which we are governed, which desperately needs to be reformed, don't you think? I I couldn't agree more. I think, as you know, we started out with the mandate to listen learn and recommend, right? Very innocent questions. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? What could we do better? But along the way, this movement, this new muscle in democracy has been created. People took on the NCI as their own. I I mean, I've seen um, spray painted, uh, spray painted walls by the highway from, you know, in one part of the country, people printing out their own postcards, creating their own business cards, flyers, uh, posters. I mean, people have taken this on as their own. There's no one person that knows who all the thousands of volunteers are across the country. So yes, there's something has been created. And I think Just the one piece of inspiration, we had a Twitter space where a woman had shared that she wasn't uh, somebody who was um, very outgoing. She's not somebody who, uh, sorry, extroverted, I would say. But she had printed up these little pieces of paper with the NCI website, going to a local cafe and handing them out. And so we took this idea on in when on July First, when on Canada Day, we launched the This is Canada campaign, asking people to print out flyers with the link to the website, asking people to watch testimony and putting them in mailboxes. So these are the kinds of actions that have been created. And all of that information is accessible. There's, you know, all of this 305 testimonies are all online on our website, each one is being built with its own page, with a transcript, with translation, with a bio on the witness, you know, and with extra interviews that we're continuing to do. Well, do you ever wonder or have a dark night of the soul that all of this effort at the end of the day is for naught? Because the powers that be are so 
well and truly entrenched, and I'm talking primarily about globalist powers, obviously, and the WEF and the rest of them, who have their own agenda. Um, do you fear that you made this wonderful effort and you achieved so much, especially from a narrative perspective, but that at the end of the day, it's like witnessing, but it doesn't really change anything? I don't. <laughs> Maybe uh, that sounds naive. I don't because I, I don't believe in the alternative because the alternative is to just give up is just to watch this move to totalitarianism is just to be feel uh, completely disempowered. And I think, in fact, the opposite is happening, that this moment in history is the moment to discover and exercise our agency. I think a lot of people are feeling in some ways more powerful more personally powerful than they ever have. And I think more people are experiencing a sense of purpose and connection and finding their tribe. You know, I, I'm sure you've had this experience, but the people that, you know, a lot of people have had broken relationships and I certainly am one of those people. And this has caused so much divide. But the other side of that is it's caused so much coming together and based on something much bigger than, you know, what you do for a living or your neighborhood, you know, there's mm -hmm. something else possible here. So no, I don't. That's <laughs> the answer to your question. Well, no, it's important. I, I think because, well, I mean, what you're describing to some degree is what I call trucker energy, mm -hmm. that when, you know, I always say things are very truckery because there was that magic that happened around the convoy when Canadians got together finally after hiding away in places where they couldn't say what they thought they knew something wrong was happening but they were silenced and then you put them in a room together and it's really joyful because it's a coming together again of people who are used to canadians generally like each other we have spats you know over quebec and other western value stuff but but we generally like each other you know we'll come together over the raptors or a hockey game or some other bit we you know it's there and COVID kind of stopped that. So the truckers brought that back. That was maybe the most important thing. But I think that you folks are, are doing that as well. And what I see, not to be too kind of emotional about it, but I do see at these events, I, I go to a lot of them myself, is a there's a lot of weepiness when people realize they're not alone. And that says something about how isolated and frightened people are when they feel that the government no longer and their neighbors no longer reflect what they thought this country was. But you, but you point to something interesting. You know, we. I think you see not to get too emotional about it, and yet the government has used emotion against us. That emotion is exactly what has been weaponized. So we need to take that back. We need to use the emotion that actually empowers us. So it is emotional. Yeah, it is. I just, before we go, I want to just talk to you a little bit about some of the testimonies that you took, some of which I know about, um, because we can learn a lot from them. And witnessing is sort of like a chaplaincy, right? It has a big historical meaning beyond just writing down what people say, oral history and that sort of thing. I believe in it very, very much. Um, tell me the story of the the paramedic and the suicide. I hope I've got that correct. You know the one I mean? 
I, I think so. So I think you're referring to Scarlett Martin, who yes. uh, was talking about talking about the PCR tests and the um, how how can I say this the almost demand to find COVID positive tests. So she actually was on a call where a man had jumped from, I believe, a seven-story roof, clearly died because his head hit the pavement, and they were yeah. doing a PCR swab, finding him positive. So that would have been recorded as a COVID death. So they're trying to pump up the numbers of COVID deaths. See, that that's just absurd. The, the, one of the things that attended COVIDian policies was that many Many of them were absurd, weren't they? I mean, you can stand here, but not there. You can go to this aisle at Target, but not that one. I mean, you can stand with a mask and sit down without a mask. I, I mean, it, it, the absurdity goes on and on and on. It's I, at some point I thought, you know, if this wasn't real, it would be, a, you know, it would be a comedy. Yeah. Tell me a, a, another testimony that really stuck with you. And then I want to know, just in, in wrapping up today, um, how being so deeply embedded of the psyche in the psyche of this country, after a, a, an event like the COVID-19 public policy, how that has changed you. But give me a, a, an anecdote first, from one of the witnesses that really affected you, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, not at all, because for me, um, honoring these very courageous witnesses is the most important thing, most important part of what I've been doing. And the one that always comes to mind, I mean, there are many, many, but Marjolina Repo, uh, she is a woman in Saskatchewan, an elderly woman who could not wear a mask, who tried to educate her city council about masks before they were mandated, but was kicked off of buses. This is her only means of transportation. She actually had to go to a doctor's appointment and she was sitting there without her mask. And as she said, all, all they cared about was the mask. And so when she got into the appointment, the doctor was about to give her a diagnosis. And she said, he, she asked that he take his mask off when he told her. And he's, and she said for a moment, he was a human being. And he told her that she had stage four cancer. This woman went to a coffee shop to go and just, she said, I just wanted to have a coffee and have a little cry in the corner by myself. But they harangued her about the mask, even though she told them she was medically mask exempt. She went home that night and she posted on Facebook about what had happened. Well, some local radio DJ got a hold of this chastised her. She woke up in the morning to hundreds of hateful messages, including death wishes. I don't understand what happens to people, what happens to our humanity, but something got broken. And that is, for me, the most important piece of this is healing that. And I think that's part of what we're doing. And I think how this has changed me is that I have a much stronger sense of being a part of, of being a Canadian, of being a part of a community, 
And I think that is, as you said, Canadians, we generally like each other and that's what we are rebuilding. And I think that will become stronger than ever. And I think the truckers showed us how to lead the way. And I think this is the next part of that. That's the Marlene Repo story is astonishingly bizarre in what it reveals about the way people were behaving here. I interviewed Kai Matthews, who, or not Kai Matthews, I interviewed his father. Kai Matthews was a kid who uh, became, he's 22, super athlete, really good kid, and he became gravely ill. Initially, they thought it was flu, went downhill very, very quickly with something very serious. And his parents tried to get treatment for him at the hospital more than once, and they kept sending him away because he did not have a negative COVID test. They, I mean, they, they, they let me just finish. So they took him back. They took they took him home again. They called an ambulance. The ambulance came. The amb ambulance wouldn't take him because he didn't have a negative COVID test. Writhing on the floor, throwing up, obvious signs of some terrible medical problem. But the COVID test, the focus on COVID was more important. Finally, they got Kai into a car. They took him to hospital. They sent him home again, but in the parking lot, his mother noticed a rash and they called the nurse out and it was, it was a rash for a terrible, terrible brain disorder that he was, meningitis, that he was dying of. And by the time they got him in, it was too late. He was dead by the next morning. They'd had a full day to start him on antibiotics and they kept misdiagnosing him because they were so focused on COVID-19. It's almost like, and I don't specifically mean these people, but there was a point I felt in Canada where it was okay for you to die of anything else. You can commit suicide. You can do all these things that may be happening because of our policies, but God forbid anybody should get COVID. That's how it was playing out, that kind of absolute absurdity. And so those of us who saw that, I interviewed Kai's father, obviously his parents were devastated, this beautiful, beautiful boy. And I thought, wow, if our country can turn like that on fear and propaganda, we are in a lot of trouble. And I hope that you guys have maybe pulled us away from that. Do you think you have, Michelle? Do you think it can happen? Or do you think the next time they crank the fear up to 11, we're, we're in trouble? We've got about one minute left. I have to believe that the tide is turning. I have to believe that. I see the fact that people are actually watching the testimony who are maybe suspicious, who maybe doubted that there was something nefarious going on. I think that people are opening their eyes and they are seeing the truth. I, I hope that we have learned the lesson of how how easily we can be manipulated. I, I yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, you've got a website, right? What what is it? Just say it quickly. Yeah, gatheryourwits.com. And I actually will be um, uh, posting a podcast very soon where I'm talking to people about how it is they true themselves up to what really matters. Yeah. And are you going to live stream the dropping of the document or how is how are yes, people going to be able to? Okay. Yes. So nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. We will also be on Twitter, on Rumble, the usual places. And yes, you can live stream. It's uh, 11 a.m. Eastern on the 28th. And then the okay, French version will be at 2 p.m. Eastern. Sorry, what? The, oh, the French. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 2 p.m. Yeah. Eastern. Yeah. And so just quickly, what's what's your next move? Are you sticking with NCI? Give me a 30-second answer and we'll be done. 
That's a good question. Um, mostly, I, I am trying to get the information out so that people can do these depositions and also connecting with people internationally if they want to start their own inquiry, and then focusing on this podcast and where my writing is going to go next. Well done. Thanks so much for doing this, Michelle. Really my grateful. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Trish. Okay. So that was Michelle LaDuke-Catlin. She's part of the National Citizens Inquiry in Canada, put together by Canadian citizens because the government of Canada was not making any moves whatsoever toward examining what happened, toward accountability for those who made bad decisions, and even for those, obviously, to cheer for those who made good decisions. There weren't too many, but but just we're just moving on. I mean, governments just decide that they're moving on and too bad. So that's what she's doing. I'm Trish Wood. This is The Edit. See you tomorrow or Monday, I guess. Bye-bye.